On the flip side, I go back to this idea of being able to listen to the growers on the other hand, right, and really hearing from a lot of the growers around the need to support an agrobiodiversity approach as it relates to the, the commodities that they grow. Why? Because if you want to invest in organic and regenerative agriculture, right, you can't be a monocrop operation. You can't grow one thing over and over and over again, because the only way to do that is through the non-organic approach of, you know, chemical pesticides and inputs. And so a lot of our growers are looking for these new biodiverse raw materials that they can grow that help their soil, but they need the market. This is C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CBG business from conception to consumption. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Today, I'm very excited to have as my guest, Ricky Silver from Daily Harvest. Ricky works for a fantastic company with a lot of great products and is currently chief supply chain officer at Daily Harvest, as we all know, a very critical role in these trying times. So welcome to the program, Ricky. Thanks so much for having me. We focus so much on innovation here and on all the different challenges of food and beverage and CBG. So what are you seeing as some of the biggest challenges in food and beverage today? Yeah, that's a great question. And if you don't mind, I'll just take a quick step back to make sure for the listeners on uh, tuning in can to know all about Daily Harvest. We're delivering chef-crafted food built on sustainably sourced fruits and vegetables. And our recipes are delicious, easy to prep, and as good for you as they are for the planet. Um, we like to say from seed to plate, we're committed to building a better food system. So a lot of that is what drives our approach to innovation. And, and getting back to that question around what's the biggest challenge, I think if you think about the way the industry has uh, focused and, and, and prioritize innovation, uh, it certainly hasn't been at the prioritization of human and planetary health. Um, so in the short term, I think a lot of the industry is trying to keep up uh, and trying to, to, to course correct because of the systems um, that they've been so reliant on. I mean, case in point, you know, food is responsible for one third of the global emissions. And we know the current challenges as it relates to um, um, uh, human health and health care as it relates to people's food choices and what's available to them. So if we want to address climate crisis and, and nourish humanity, we really have to rethink how we both grow food and how we eat it. Um, and so I think, you know, to answer it more specifically, a real uh, challenge for this industry is to pivot as quickly as possible um, and to really anchor the needs of consumers, the true needs of consumers um, as it relates to health, taste and convenience. Um, because if we change the way we eat, we can also the, change the way we grow food. Um, and that's really core to Daily Harvest mission. And so you see it as priority one today, priority one in 10 years. Yeah, I think, look, we, we have to look at it at a horizon, right? You can't course correct an industry this size overnight. But if in 10 years from now, we think about are we getting closer to that that new system, right? Not just trying to tweak and adjust the one we have today, but really a new vision for the food system. Um, you look out ahead to what's coming 10 years from now, right? Things on the climate side, for example, are only going to accelerate. Um, even if we make the progress we, we know we can um, as a global industry, a global industrial system, right? There's no question 10 years from now, the impacts that climate will have on the, the world and on supply chains um, will only create more chaos and more complexity. So, um, well, I don't, I wouldn't say it's a new issue 10 years from now. I just think it's an evolution of the challenges we're facing today. Mm -hmm. And Ricky, what, um, is there anything in particular that you could recommend that every company in the food and beverage industry should either stop or start doing? 
I love I love that question. Um, I think one of the things we've really been focusing on um, because of this idea that we we really want to ground our food innovation in in the, the the consumer who eats it, right, and you know develop the food with their inputs in mind. Um, but but more uniquely, I think to what we've been doing is also uh, take the inputs of those that are growing the food themselves. And so I think if you think about the really traditional model of R and D and procurement that the the industrial food system has relied on, um, the procurement side really ends up going out there to the, uh, the, the, the supplier world, right? Whether that be a processor or a grower even, and, and sort of tells them what they need, right? And so mm-hmm. it's a purchase what, what we define as the need model. And I think what we've been really excited to see is when you go out there and you actually talk to the agricultural community and ask them what they want to grow or even what they need to grow, right? They know what's going to work most importantly for for their soil health, for example, or making sure that they can add that extra crop rotation into their organic cycle. Um, It's unbelievable what happens, right? You start to ask questions and you start to open up possibilities. And so a lot of the way we think about our innovation model is how do we create a culinary operation and a supply chain organization that can take those inputs, both from the agricultural side and the consumer side, and be nimble enough to support it, right? Create the markets for those interesting and important, um, you know, potential growth areas. So I would say, you know, just to answer it more directly, I think we need as brands and as businesses to stop being so much order uh, makers and be Mm -hmm. better listeners. Mm -hmm. More more partnership, less uh, adversarial traditional relationships. Yeah, exactly. And that's a great segue to to our next topic, which is when it comes to innovation, so much innovation today, as you know, Ricky, is tied to collaboration. Um, what do you see as your key collaboration partners when you develop a new product? And I know Daily Harvest is constantly launching new products. So who are the key stakeholders that you collaborate with? Is it your customers? Is it your suppliers? Is it your co-mans? Uh, all of the above. Talk to our listeners about that. Yeah, I, and I can use just one of our recent launches. Just this this last week, we launched our Daily Harvest Crumbles, which is our uh, entry point into the alternative meat category. Mm. Um, very exciting, and I think um, you know what stands, uh, what what that category stands apart for us is uh, exactly to your point. Who are we listening to, and who are we helping? You know, who are we driving information from to guide our development process? So first, on the consumer side, you know, we do a ton of listening. Um, we work very closely with our in-house data science and research teams to generate ideas and to generate areas of opportunity directly from our customers. Um, and what we heard from them in that case, right, was a, a, a desire and a, a look for something more in that higher protein, you know, more on, on the staple side, right? How do we take something that can be used in a multi multitude of ways? So we heard that loud and clear from our consumers. And on the flip side, right, I go back to this idea of being able to listen to the growers, on the other hand, right, and really hearing from a lot of the growers around the need to support uh, um, an agrobiodiversity approach as it relates to um, the, the commodities that they grow. Why? Because if you want to invest in organic and regenerative agriculture, right, you can't be a monocrop operation. You can't grow one thing over and over and over again, because the only way to do that is through the non-organic approach of you know, chemical pesticides and inputs. And so a lot of our growers are looking for these new biodiverse raw materials that they can grow that help their soil, but they need the market. 
And so we were able to put those two things together, right? This deep consumer need for a healthy, truly plant-based, not lab-grown uh, uh, meat alternative with a ability to support a range of biodiverse ingredients. And there you go. Now you've got crumbles. And so when we think about, um, you know, who are we developing with, those primary points of contact are developing food with those that eat it and those that grow it. I love it. I love crumbles because, as you know, some of the plant-based um, alternative protein providers have, have had a lot of flack in the press about having a lot of overly processed or not necessarily, quote, natural ingredients. It looks like, uh, looks like you got some really good things in crumbles there. Yeah, and, I, and look, we, we like to say, you know, we really are um, challenging ourselves as much as we, you know, feel like we're challenging the industry. And so we really hold ourselves to a standard um, where we, we want to make sure we're delivering on our mission with each and every product launch. Uh, but it's true, right? A lot of these other alternatives that have been developed are relying on, you know, pretty heavily processed operations and also, you know, just a handful of, unfortunately, those same crops that, you are you know are most likely to be monocropped out in the industry, right? So if you think about soy and um, corn and, and and wheat, even right, like these these are crops that are not contributing to a regenerative approach. And so again, uh, you know, competition is good, and so there's lots of alternatives out there in the world. But we really feel like Crumbles is is a unique proposition, and, and we're excited about the early uh, traction we're building with uh, with the consumers on it. And you're saying you had a different kind of relationship with your suppliers and that they, you pulled them maybe forward more into the innovation process, rather, whether it was, uh, I'm looking at your ingredients here, uh, lentils, uh, walnuts, uh, mushrooms. Is, is that how it worked? Yeah, and I'll actually give you another example that I love to bring up. Um, we were visiting um, lentil farmers actually in Montana not too long ago, and some of the conversation really specifically was around the challenges that they're having. These are organic growers you know, keeping that land in organic production. Mm -hmm. uh, why are they struggling? Well, there's, you know, an invasive uh, pest that they're, you know, struggling to, to manage with the organic solutions that are in the market. Um, and so what we heard from them loud and clear was two things. One, they desperately needed companies and, and government to step in and help fund and invest in solutions to those types of problems. They were tremendously, you know, organizing themselves to, to work together to find solutions. But this is a great area where corporations and government should be stepping up more. But two, they also acknowledged that they were some tried and true solutions to these problems, like adding additional rotations into their crop planning. Hmm. Um, and, and there were some unique varietals of ingredients like chickpeas, for example, that they were finding if they could uh, plant those into those rotations, they were seeing incredible results for uh, their soil health and the management of the organic process. And so one of those was this unique black chickpea varietal um, that we saw and we loved and, you know, the, 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 the sort of lamented, if only there was a market, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I had not seen a black chickpea before personally. Um, and, and we said, well, good news. Our culinary team will find an application for that. Um, and so, you know, there we go. They were able to mm -hmm. make that commitment to grow and we were able to make that commitment to purchase, knowing that we had built the culinary and innovation mindset to find a home and find a solution for that. So it really goes back to that, you know, change in mindset around what, what procurement or what sourcing means, mm. because we're able to create opportunities for those farmers um, uh, that 
is not reliant on existing recipes, right? We're able to develop around it. And I, I just love that example mm. because it's, it's, you know, it doesn't always work that seamlessly, right? Um, but it's really a great example of how, you know, when, when you approach uh, the process differently, you end up with really special outcomes. So you actually became a partner in their crop rotation. Yes. Um, and, you know, soon, soon to be, right, the team's working on those recipes now. So when the, those black chickpeas become available, right, they actually grow and, and, and are handled and available for use, we'll be ready. Well, if they ever make Kiss the Ground Part 2, you guys need to be in it. <laughs> well, we're definitely excited about some of the partnerships we've got out there, both on the, 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 the actual farming side, but also some of our new partners as it relates to, you know, um, different bodies like American Farmland Trust and CCOF, which we could definitely get into um, because, you know, our, our belief is we're both trying to change the way the industry is working, um, but also humble enough to know that it won't be just on us. So, um, yeah, partnership is going to be key. And that, and that kind of segues into our next topic, which is you recently partnered with some other CPG companies, not suppliers, other CPG companies like Simple Mills, uh, on something called the Almond Project. Tell us about that. Uh, this is such a, such a great example of what's possible when brands um, and suppliers and government and, you know, and, and technical experts come together and really think about how to change the world. Um, the Almond Project is um, a, a multi-year investment in um, researching the impacts of regenerative practices on almond growers and almond growing, I should say. Um, and uh, what we were able to come together, uh, Simple Mills, Capello's, uh, Treehouse Almonds, um, the, um, a few others as well in that mix in terms of bringing this to life was coming up with a strategy that lays out four different plots of lands, applies different practices to each and actually studies over five years the impact that those practices have over soil health and um, you know, a multitude of different specific attributes, like, you know, how much water is being maintained in the soil. And, you know, almond gets that wrap as a high water utilization crop. But, you know, the truth is um, some of these practices may totally transform the ability for almonds to be a sustainable uh, commodity, not just for people eating it, but for those that are growing it, right? We often forget when we talk about agriculture that, you know, the farmer livelihood component of sustainability is really, really critical. And so this is working and this is happening because, you know, of that partnership and that commitment to the long term, because I would say that's the biggest trade-off right now in, in the system. It takes time and energy and money to validate changes in agriculture um, and the brands and the businesses have to be the ones helping lead that transition. Because if we find results in these next three to five years that are meaningful, yeah, it will only have been on a relatively small plot of land, all things considered. But now you can actually go to other growers and convince them it's worth it, right? Because I think that's one of the big challenges we have. You know, agriculture is already a pretty low margin business. It's high risk. These farmers are investing their livelihoods and in, 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 Asking them to do more without that proof point, um, you know, it's, it's just too much to ask. And so this is a great example of both partnership and a commitment to the long term that I'm, I'm just so thrilled we're a part of. So I know the Almond Project at this point, it's an experiment and you guys are going to let this play out over multiple years. So you got to see what you find. But do you have any preliminary theories on where this is headed or how, how you may improve almond growing? Well, I think the nice thing is, while it is an experiment, I would say it's more 
a validation experiment than it is a you know start from scratch, right? We're, we're definitely not starting from zero as it relates to the types of practices that should have an impact, right? Things like cover cropping and animal integration are proven methodologies um, uh, on the aggregate, but now it's a question of really digging into the specifics. What is the real tangible impact on soil health um, that we can measure? Because I think where maybe um, uh, we hope, right, that the industry is headed and we hope, you know, business is headed is a world in which those investments in new practices, which often come at a cost, can be uh, validated sufficiently so those costs are covered not by the farmer, right, but by the industry and government as a whole um, to uh, accelerate the change we need so that we can deal with the climate crisis, right? So this is where government and corporations are going to need to step up. Um, we think an experiment like this helps create some of the data set to really justify some of that additional spending. But you think about where the government, for example, you know, is subsidizing agriculture today, that simply can't be where we subsidize agriculture long term if we want agriculture to be a solution to the climate problem. Um, mm -hmm. And so, again, while relatively small in the grand scheme of things, we really see this as a model that helps scale change in the system. Yeah, yeah. And so, Ricky, with so many companies scrambling to do something about sustainability or perhaps to even slap some sort of sustainability uh, uh, elements onto their labels. What advice do you give to these companies? I'd say, you know, it helps to be a business that has it ingrained in your DNA. So I'm grateful that I work for a company that can honestly say from the get-go, right, the mission was tied to the greater, uh, the bigger we get, the greater we can do, um, and really had a, a key, keen eye, eye towards this idea that you know, our, our core mission of changing the way people eat was connected to the way food is grown and, and being able to make a meaningful uh, debt in that. Look, but not all companies, I think, have that, that, that starting point. And so I would say, you know, on a more, you know, uh, gene general level, making sure that you really are focused on long-term impact as opposed to short-term um, attention is, is a real key. Um, you know, resist greenwashing. It is an incredibly easy thing to start touting potential um, changes in the system, um, you know, to draw attention to yourselves. Uh, but rather, I'd love to see more brands just simply acknowledge the complexity and acknowledge the realities and the trade-offs that exist in the system. You know, I started my career um, uh, at PepsiCo um, and was spent a lot of time working on some long-term packaging technologies and really saw firsthand that there's this tension between new technology and the infrastructure to deal with it, right? Mm -hmm. So you think about composting, um, it may be more relevant to the daily harvest business today, right? You know, composting in and of itself is an incredible solution to a massive problem. And yet there isn't sufficient composting infrastructure and technology in the country. So these are trade-offs that I think if brands were just a little bit more honest and a little bit more humble about, you know, the difficulties, I should say. I think, one, consumers would engage in the problem more. And two, there would be these more obvious examples of partnerships. Um, I've told this story before, and I, I feel like I probably have to retire it at some point. But, you know, early days in my career, I remember getting sort of almost laughed out of a room when I suggested, you know, PepsiCo and Coca-Cola work together on, on changing the way hmm. we looked at plant-based plastic as the future, right? Why were we competing on a problem that, you know, 
the, the data has proven out, consumers aren't going to, you know, choose in the long run based off of who, you know, who got there first, right? But rea- the reality is, what if those companies had worked together to, to, to solve that problem? Maybe both would have solved it faster. Do you worry that uh, with the word greenwashing showing up more and more in the media, do you worry that consumers are just going to get jaded and burned out on this whole topic? I don't know. I think there's a real, you know, consumer reality. When you think about the, the what impacts them, you know, the truth is most consumers don't have the time um, um, to invest, you know, all of their energy into solving um, the climate crisis. It's not fair to put it on the end consumer in my mind. Right. It's where I think we've spent a lot of the last number of decades is trying to convince people to use less water or, you know, change the way that they shop. And look, that's a part of it. But I really think it's more uh, uh, um, incumbent upon business and government, as I said, to really drive the changes that need to occur at a, at a, at a greater scale. And so I think there will always be a consumer enthusiasm for um, companies and brands that, that do it the right way. And again, engage with them in a really open and transparent uh, way. I think transparency is the key here. Um, it's possible that you know consumers will start to feel like, you know, uh, no matter uh, uh, what they're hearing, maybe they can't, you know, totally trust it. But that's where I think, you know, being open and honest is the key. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard. It's mm-hmm. it's not going to be easy to solve these problems. But if if brands are truly focused on it, I think we can get there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ricky, anything else? Uh, any other words of advice you'd like to share with our listeners before we go into wrap up? No, I, I guess I would just say I think one of the things that's been most humbling for me working at Daily Harvest is really seeing the reactions we get uh, from our customers, you know, when they when they really feel the difference in the food that they eat, right? We don't, you don't need to eat daily harvest for every meal, for example, to feel the difference. But, you know, when you have that relationship with your customer and you, and you lean on them um, uh, to share with you real feedback, it's amazing how much that will guide you. And I think that consumer centricity is something a lot of businesses talk about um, it's not necessarily hard at this point in, in the, the way the world is built to collect data or ingest data. It's are you set up to do something about it? And I'm, I'm so grateful that Rachel in, in the early days of Daily Harvest really challenged us to build a physical product organization that was capable of reacting to that data. And so that that's my sort of, you know, biggest piece of advice is as you're thinking about setting up your business you know, collecting data is table stakes these days. But, you know, are you building an organization that knows what to do with it is is where I think the difference makers will, will ultimately uh, prove out. I want to thank my guest today, Ricky Silver, who is Chief Supply Chain Officer at Daily Harvest. If you have not checked out their products, really cool products, go check them out, Daily Harvest. And uh, another great product recently launched, Crumbles. Sounds terrific. Uh, Ricky, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Just type the letters C-T-O-C, no spaces, to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbeam, and Google Play.